with this time traveling thing. Time travel is not for black people. Traveling back in time doesn't make sense for you. If you travel back in time, you would be a slave. Do you want to be a slave, Mark? No, I responded. Well, good. Now be quiet. Read your book and let people like you. I am the sugar at the bottom of the English cup of tea. I am the sweet tooth, the sugar plantations that rotted generations of English children's tea. When I, when I read that line, it immediately came to me. Hey, and welcome to Shade with me, Lou Mensa, holding the space for progressive anti-racism conversations through the lens of creativity and activism. Now, before we head into today's show, I want to say how important it is now, more than ever, that independent podcasting is supported, that creatives and activists get their voices heard. So please support this work and help elevate the voices of those working on the education and protection of our human rights. And if you benefit from this podcast and can contribute to the Shade Patreon, please do via patreon.com forward slash shade podcast and share the show with those who might benefit from the archive. And thank you so much to the new patrons who signed up this month. There's a bit of a list, but I just really wanted to express my thanks to you individually. So that's to you, Emma, Nancy, Victoria, Eric, two Charlottes, Chad, Tracy, Amy, Rochelle, Kelsey, Mel, Opal, Stacy, Jennifer, Dale, Louisa, Helena, Ika, Anna, and a special thanks to Leila Saad, who became a patron this month. And now to today's episode. Richard Mark Rawlings is a multidisciplinary artist who currently lives and works in Hastings in the UK. He's a graduate of the Royal College of Arts print programme and his research takes a transnational approach to the pop cultural, poetics and politics of life in the Caribbean. His work was featured in the internationally acclaimed Get Up Stand Up Now exhibition at Somerset House back in 2019 in London. And we cover Richard's influences, his childhood in Trinidad and he shares his hopes for what's coming next as this resurgence in the movement continues. Part of me being here is this thing that Stuart Hall said, where he, um, people like him who came to Britain in the 50s, right, like they were coming home. You know, he said, so in a sense, he was an insider, but not an insider. He was an outsider, but not an outsider. And I sort of feel like that, but with a different twist, right? I feel like your, law, your long lost cousin, you know? Mm-hmm. And you have this family that you've never seen, and then they come to visit, you're really excited to see them, and you want to know them and stuff like that. And the thing about it is... Um, you don't go into somebody's house and just sit down any old place. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You have to ask them first, where can I sit? But before you do that, you have to assume that they'll allow you to sit in that space. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways of broaching that is to get to know them. And mm-hmm. the thing for me, um, in in my whole search for identity and everything that I've been doing, is I've been looking at where I come from. And where I come from means a diaspora of a diaspora of a diaspora. Mm-hmm. I'm not connected, I'm not connected to the cousins across the pond in the way that I'm connected to here. Right. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is we were a post-colonial country and um, you know, Trinidad was a post-colonial country, Trinidad and Tobago, right? So so my education and everything is shaped by that. So there's a familiarity that I feel to hear that I don't necessarily feel with the United States. Mm-hmm. You know? So for me, all these new connections I'm making, people like you, Lorna, Zulika, I mean, these this is this is like people saying, you know, hey cousin, you know what I mean? When I decided that I was going to RCA to do my master's at RCA, right, one of the things that was kicking me all the time was, okay, you're going to have to do this dissertation, right? And I, w- I haven't been out of school for like, what, 18 years to come back 
you know, with this old brain and go and do this again and stuff like that. And then I get to RCA and I meet Dr. Exter Teichman, mm-hmm. who was my supervisor, right? And she basically guided me through the process. Not that I couldn't do it, but she just basically said, you know, Richard, you pretty much know what you're doing and, and, you, and you, you have a way of expressing yourself, right? Just follow through with that and just write like that. I said, so you mean I can write like I speak? She says, yes. You mm-hmm. can write in your own voice. Nobody said that you had to write like an academic, you know, right? Mm-hmm. And once once I got that under the belt, that was that was it for the dissertation, right? Uh... And I mean, funny story. It was early January in RCA. You do your you do your dissertation in the first year. You get out of the way so that the second year is just making work and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. You you submit it. You submit a paragraph of what you want to write about and the style that you're gonna write in December. And then you come back out in January and they green lighted for you to follow through. Right. So I came back out in January and, and, and Dr. Teichman says, you know, you're good to go. So I spent five days writing the entire dissertation. I take it to my wife and she helps me edit it and we bring it down to the 10,000 words and I bring it back and I said, right, so submit it. She goes, well, you know, you have to wait until um, July. But <laughs> the good thing is you're done. The the dissertation is called Finding Black, and it was actually an identity mm-hmm. um, deep dive that I was doing. And I, I was doing that for like probably about four years before I came to RCA. I had done it as artwork, but I'd never sat down and translated it back into essays. And that's what it actually became. Like you created this separate piece of work that could almost be like a piece of work, a book in its own right about yeah. your own work. And I just mm-hmm. think that that is very hard for a lot of visual artist to be able to do just going back to the very beginning when you started visual your visual work um mm-hmm. how did you come to the point of realizing that this is the work that you wanted to do and how affected you had been by taking in and ingesting the media images and representations that you had experienced growing up this is where that term coming of age really hits you because as I, as I got older and I started actually looking at the things that shaped me, right, I realized that this this is work, you know, and it's like trying to bail out the Atlantic with a bucket. It's never going to happen, you know, so I'm going to be doing this luckily. And I, I say luckily because I don't see it as a burden, right? I'm, I'm going to be doing the work that I'm doing from now until the day I die. Coming from a post-colonial country, your education is shaped in, I think, a pretty much different way to if I was... I said, again, with the cousins across the pond in the U.S. or here, right? Mm-hmm. So I always think of what are the things that define you and who you are. And I'm, I'm a big fan of Stuart Hall, and I believe that culture is that thing and what shapes what shapes culture, right? Mm-hmm. My dad is someone, I mean, he's, he, he passed in 2006, but he's someone who you could have considered very, um, very Anglophile. You know, the kids would say he has a colonized mind. Mm-hmm. Right. You can you can basically extrapolate that into a number of different things. He was a member of the British West Indian Regiment. He was born into a British colonial country. You know, he was born in 1940. And then by 1962, he was a citizen of his own independent country. Mm-hmm. You understand? So there are all these different things. I came in 1967. So I never knew having um, colonial rule. Right. I came into I came into basically a new a new independent, a new independent country. In a sense, what I've always been fed in terms of an education has always been largely British and Anglophile. Mm. What I've taken in in terms of television and movies and the other things in terms of popular culture was largely American. 
So between these two things, and considering that I was born in 67, I went into the 70s with a mixed mash of, of popular culture that eventually would begin to shape my sense of, of who I was. I'll give you an example of how these things sort of affect you. Like a lot of British children, I grew up reading Enid Blyton, Famous Five, Famous Four, Famous Three, you know, the whole, the whole shebang. And of course, golly. We had a young man in our school. So we are kids in school, 30, 30 kids, largely Afro-Indo, and, you know, a few white children in between or mixed, as in most Caribbean islands, or but specifically in Trinidad. We called this guy, this one guy, his name was Alistair, we called him Gully. And the reason we called him Gully was because he had very dark skin, a bushy afro, very red lips, very big lips, and he looked like a gollywog. No, we weren't being racist, you know, it's just that we read Enid Blyton. Error references for what a gollywog looked like was Alistair. And we called, we called Alistair Gully for seven years. He understood it, took it as a joke, and we um, kept going with it for all our, all our life in school. And... It's only it's only in later years when I'm discussing things with my own my own daughters, right? You realize you realize how these things actually shape you. In a sense, it's a sense of um, well, I don't want to say denial of sense, but we inculcate other things mm-hmm. into your system. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is it is the worst of the things that you actually bring in. Yeah, you know? I hear. Mm-hmm. Right? So that was one that was one example of it, right? Then by contrast, some of the other things that we took in were, again, American television. Early 70s American television was the time CNN called it, um, the time that television got real. Norman Lear was the king of television, and he had shows like The Jefferson and um, All in the Family and Sanford and Son, and, and all of these things, all of these things came out. So for me, this was my representation of the African-American. And the African-American, if you look at shows like Good Times, I don't know, I don't know if you all got that, what it showed you is it showed you the so-called African-American state. And Good Times was this show. It was supposed to be real. And even talking about it for me is a little hard now because it was supposed mm-hmm. to be real. But what it was, it was this celebration of a so-called ghetto story as, as written by Norman Lear. Right? Mm-hmm. And while it is critically acclaimed by some, it's critically panned by others. Because there were things that it did in the show. It was a comedy but it was about, you know, it was about a family in the projects and the hard times that they had mm. and how they were living. Simple things, right? Like like a team song that goes, good times, scratching and surviving, good mm. times, hanging in and jiving, mm. good times, ain't we lucky we got them, boom, 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 good times. Well, that stuff was the furthest from my own reality, <laughs> you know? So it was mm. this oddity um. And even then, I knew that something was wrong with it. I came from a, a middle-class household, right? So I'm a middle-class Black man. You know, we didn't live like that. These representations of, of the scratching and surviving mm-hmm. and the jiving and, and of course, the, the, the dance, right? I did, a whole, I did a whole piece on that, So You Think You Could Dance, mm-hmm. where I basically pulled out all these, all these elements of dance from these 70s shows, mm-hmm. where as soon as... As soon as the, the writers had nothing to do with the characters, they would just have them dancing, right? Mm. And they'd be dancing, and then the laugh track would come on. And basically, it was a sort of new coonery in yeah, a way, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. And that's that's what it was, right? Mm. You know, so for me, there was this this way I looked at the African-American as something that was totally different from what I was. I knew that I was not that. The way it was portrayed to me, it was also portrayed to me as something that I don't want to aspire to and I want to look down on. 
and this is what Norman Lear did. And I think, in a sense, I could distance myself from it because, hey, I was from an island and our, our whole racial dynamic was totally different to that. The other thing that I picked up on, now coming on to this side of the pond, was Love Thy Neighbor. Rudolph Walker and Nina Bidensemper were just super sexy and we love Love Thy Neighbor, right? But again, it was my first introduction, in a sense, to the real dynamics of race where, you know, they were calling Nick Nog and, and, and Honky and this and that. And, and this was the mm. funny, this was the funny television of the mm. 70s, of, mm. of British television. And so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as yeah. you get older, you realize it was highly racist. And and the reason, the reason I guess I'm critical of some of these shows, even though I liked them when I was younger, and now that I'm older, I look at certain things, right? And I look at how the media projects itself and how it makes you into what you want to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of these things are deliberate because... The, the black community in the United States gets the Jeffersons and Sanford and Son and, you know, all in the mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. and the copious amounts of the N-word being used left, right and center mm-hmm. in the um in the television. It was the 70s, so you could say that stuff on television, right? Mm-hmm. And then the feminist movement gets Rhoda and Mary Tyler Moore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the anti-war movement gets MASH, you know yes. what I'm saying? And these shows bring with it a certain type of intelligence to the comedy that I think the the so-called the so-called black let's get real television of the early US 70s, you know, didn't bring to the table. My first poems in, in school that I remember, right, were Charles King's Lizzie Sansoni, they wrote her in across the rolling foam, the cruelly rolling foam. This is a poem about a girl that went out, you know, to bring in her cows and then the tide comes in and she drowns. And I mean, because my dad, because my, my dad had been a soldier and we were very into military history, of course, I learned in Flanders fields of puppies blow between the crosses row and row that mark a place and in the sky, the last still bravely singing fly. You know what I mean? So we were a colonized place. I had this post-colonial education, yes. In my in my grandparents' home, there would be all these books and all these discussions going on, and they were always educating me, pretty much exactly what you're doing with your, you know, with your mm-hmm. daughter. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the thing that that shaped me. So in a sense, the the extra lessons, or in the Akala's case, the Saturday school, the people who did the Saturday school, what you're doing with what you're doing with your daughter is really maintaining these these legacies of a sensible education that yeah. can actually set somebody up to be able to access the world in real time mm-hmm. and make proper decisions mm-hmm. and, and not be willfully ignorant. The problem that we're actually having is that without a proper formula in place for our education system to function, a lot of people are either, one, becoming disenchanted with it, um, mm. two, falling through the cracks, or just not getting information that should have been there. This yeah. this was an interesting this was an interesting time for me looking at this week looking at all the things that people actually did not know and I was like oh, really mm. you know, come on really but then mm. I had to pinch myself and realize that I was in a different place because a lot of the stuff that a lot of the stuff that are now popping up in social media bites and popping up in stories that people are now learning we learned and we learned in history it was really telling for me as I say. Again, being this um this insider, but not an insider, this outsider, but not an outsider, looking in, yeah, and seeing, you know, how confusing um it was for a lot of people in a lot of these discussions, a lot of the things that they didn't know, mm. you know. I mean, I I knew all of that stuff about Churchill, and I knew about um Gandhi, and these are the things that I actually learned from my own reading, and because my parents read, and you know, and and I guess in my own, to be honest. 
I learned a lot of the other things, the problematic things later on in life. Your work really hit home to me when I took my daughter to the Get Up Stand Up exhibition that was a couple of years ago at Somerset House. Mm -hmm. I was aware of your work before, but that is when it really hit me. It's so mad, actually, because I didn't know for a long time when we were just having chit chats that you had actually created that work. But that was a really successful and important exhibition that Zach put together. That was fantastic, you know. It was a fantastic moment for me. I think it was a fantastic moment for the community, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I said to I said to my partner Mariel, I feel I feel like when they give you a call up for the West Indies, I'm a big cricket fan, right? So you'll hear all these cricket references coming in every now and again, right? But I felt like they called me up to play for the West Indies. For me, being called up to play for the West Indies would have been the, the ultimate thing. That's the like the greatest moment. You know, there's this point where you get into self-doubt with your work and what you're doing, where you wonder if the work that you're doing, if anybody's listening. You must go through this all the time. You're wondering if yeah. anybody's listening. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why am I doing this? Mm. You know, you're working, you're working on your own late at night and your brain is talking to you and saying, why don't you just stop? And then I get a call up to the West Indies side and I'm on the team and my DMs just blew up and, and everybody's just sending messages, right? <laughs> and, and the messages range from brethren i really love where you do that so yes yes <laughs> you know what i mean in that moment i realized that thing about about me being the cousin that that came home you know a woman said to me um thank you for, thank you for making this right mm-hmm. thank you thank you for me so i said how oh, so she goes she goes you said what a lot of us have wanted to say in this country for the longest time i sort of realized in that moment what the work was about what the work stood for and how the work grew past that that notion of Hall's initial um, statement, which was, you know, I am the sugar at the bottom of the English cup of tea. I am the sweet tooth, the sugar plantations that rotted generations of English children's tea. When I when I read that line, it immediately came to me. This, you know, it's like a fist of the, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that piece of work, I Am Sugar, was a response to an essay by Stuart Hall. And you yeah. came back to Stuart Hall as well in your thesis. I just really like the idea that you were exploring about roots. And he wrote a, a quote and um, an extract of that is, if you think of culture always as a return to roots, um, you're missing the point. I think of culture as roots, as in R-O-U-T-E-S, the various routes by which people travel and culture travels. It's interesting that we actually have in this discussion because this is one of the, um, the things that I think this moment is actually bringing back again, right? They're mm-hmm. hearing from other voices. And I mean, there were people like um, C.L.R. James who writes the, the comprehensive story of the Haitian Revolution. I did this drawing in um, 2019 and I actually finished it this year. And it's about 50 feet long. It's really a response to all of these things that I've read. And there are all these Caribbean intellectuals, you know, in mm-hmm. there. I mean, people talk about people talk about Baldwin and everything when you're in the in the US, right? Mm-hmm. And people have some and sometimes people have problems with CLR James because they thought that CLR James was very Eurocentric. It wasn't mm-hmm. that he was Eurocentric. I mean, he rejected colonization, right? Mm-hmm. But he also accepted the things that he he learned from the Western canon, right? As mm-hmm. he said, he didn't learn literature under a coconut tree or the shores of a beach. You understand? Mm-hmm. But he took he took the things that he learned and he basically remade them so that it could work for him. Discard yeah. the things that you don't want, right? Don't shut anything out. Take everything in. For you to be able to critique anything, you have to be able to access it. You have to be able to know it. You have to be able to learn it. And then you have to be able to chop it up. 
these are the things, these are the things that shape you. And, and for me, where my work is based on research, um, I research, then make work, and then work makes research, and then the research makes work, and it just goes back and forth. So I'm just in this ping-pong state, you know, where I do this all the time. You talk about your work is based on research, but so much um, of it is a response to your childhood as well. It was really amazing to read an extract of your conversation with your grandpa. There's always like one conversation that you remember, don't you, from your childhood? Mm -hmm. So what I'm, what I'm about to read is from Grandpa Time Travel and Me, mm. all right? Um, I'll just jump into it. Look, stop with this time traveling thing. Time travel is not for black people. Traveling back in time doesn't make sense for you. If you travel back in time, you would be a slave. Do you want to be a slave, Mark? No, I responded. Well, good. Now be quiet. Read your book and let people like you. But my grandfather was fantastic. I mean, he was incredibly well-read, right? He had a key to, um, he went to Queen's Royal College in Port of Spain, Trinidad, um, at a time when many people didn't have the opportunity. So there was that privilege. He had a key to the library and he read everything. So he knew everything. He was also big on sci-fi, which is why I'm into sci-fi. Mm -hmm. You know, he encouraged me to, to get into Jules Verne's and all these things early on. And he was into it. So whatever he was into, I was going to be into. I was reading Time Magazine at like age nine. He would always give me books and he got me into Tintin and stuff like that. And that that discussion came from Tintin on the moon. Mm -hmm. And I would talk to him over and over and over about traveling back in time. <laughs> and his response then was out of that, that act of annoyance of, oh God, shut up now. I think he was trying to protect me. Right? Mm -hmm. And he was being very real with me. He didn't want to to inculcate a lie and keep this thing going on. I was not going to be the, the, the token little black kid running around with all these white kids traveling through time where everything is hunky-dory and nobody notices. But these stories are missing a huge component. And that component is your reality. And one of the things that I think in that moment, it, it hit him as frustration, not that I was belaboring the point and I was getting him tired, right? But I think it hit him that I was coming into a world that was not changing as fast as it ought to change. So that the fantasy of me um, going back in time to something representative of, of something that I would enjoy, like in my childhood years, wasn't a reality. You don't have, you know, so many time stories involving Black people. There are a few, and mm -hmm. there are now, you know, mm -hmm. but at that time, you didn't really get it. There's this show, it was on sci-fi, I think it's on Netflix, it's called Timeless, right? Timeless has one Black character on the show. Yeah, yeah. He's an engineer. He built the time machine. He knows how to fly the time machine. He understands time, space, theory, and all that tra-la-la, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they set up this group, and they go back in time to, to correct things that have been twisted because of a, a rogue time machine. One of the characters dies. The One of the other engineers dies who's white, and the black engineer is the only one that could pilot the time machine. Mm -hmm. And Mike goes, hey, 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 hey. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I built it. I know how to fly it. I could teach somebody how to do it. You know what I mean? Do I really have to go back with you? Every time he goes back in time, he is the odd one out because he's black. So they, they go back to the antebellum south. There is this, um, the slaves are burning down a plantation and everybody's running to make the window. And he goes, hold up, you know, I just want to take this in a little bit. He wants to stand up there and watch the plantation burn down. You know what I mean? The concept of time travel is actually how I want to round this conversation up because the times we're in now yeah. we don't know what's going to happen we don't know what's going to happen next or, or where it's going these these 
these are unprecedented times and I've actually asked my previous guest who is a student of history in New York and she's um, Angelina Coronado and she was on the last episode. She wants to ask you what your hopes are. It's a, it's a pretty good question and I've been asking myself that they say that history repeats itself. History doesn't repeat itself. Mm. I mean, if you study if you study theories on 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 time and, and all that, you realize that that it doesn't work like that. What what actually repeats itself are the moments in history or the key things in history that propel certain moments. So it mm. seems like history repeats itself. So you would have seen the, the Time magazine cover when they showed you 1968 and then somebody crossed it out and I put yes. it was 2015 and then here we go again, right, yes. in, in 2020. And it seems like probably four to five year revolutions or in the case of when I was talking to Barbara Walker, she told me, Richard, it's every 30 years. She said, I, I lived through I lived through Brixton, Lambeth, all of these mm. things, you know, mm. and she said it was almost like it's every 30 years, yes. you know. And I don't want to think that 30 years from now in this moment, we're going to be back at this point again. I think this is that 1968 grab everything. This is it, right? The straw that broke the camel's back moment. And this is where things have to are going to change. You know, mm-hmm. um, we've seen protests in the US before, not to this scale, right? I mean, people could talk about Rodney King, they could talk about the Ferguson, but there is something about this moment that, is, that seems to have galvanized the world, whether mm-hmm. there are people jumping on the bandwagon. Sometimes you have to take the bad with the good to get where you want to get. Sometimes yes. you have to stoop to conquer. This is that 1968 enough is enough moment for mm. some of us whose whose lives revolve around doing, as I say, the real work. I always tell you that, right? Because you're doing the real work, it may seem tiring. For those of us who've been waiting for something like this to happen, mm. um, there is hope. For the younger ones going out there doing everything, including those with the skateboards, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. absolutely. There's, there's a lot of there's there's a lot that I see happening that that means that things definitely have to change. And for those out there, the the so-called willfully ignorant, they finally can't ignore it. Sometimes when you make the work that I make or you do the, the research that we do, mm-hmm. it feels like it's a gloom and doom moment, but it's the work. I, I have to hold out hope that it's going to change. Mm, that's a beautiful response. Thank you for that. And these conversations, I don't know about you, but they re-energize me because, <clears throat> you know, when, like you say, sometimes you're doing the work on your own or, you know, and then you've got to get on with your everyday life, your chores and, you know, your responsibilities. And it can feel quite overwhelming. And then having these conversations where you can connect and talk about these things I actually you know I'm going to leave this conversation inspired and re-energized to to get through you know the next week and see whatever's going to happen next Richard who knows what's going to be next well you know what so am I I I, I leave all of the conversations that you have and the work that you're doing out in Shade Podcast I mean I've been hyping that stuff up because it's like I'm just learning stuff by the day you know and I, was, I was I was wondering how how you managed to homeschool a kid mm. and spend that much time posting and sometimes I mean I'm up pretty late and then I see you say good night you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs>